Welcome back to the 190th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including why some Americans are not so thankful for Joe Biden's economy, how red states are probably going to face some brain drain coming here soon, and an article talking about how we need practical radicalism. I know, it's kind of a, what's the word, oxymoron, but we'll see what they have to say. And, of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So what is one thing that you are having a hard time paying for right now? Is there anything? Or has your wage gone up so much that you're able to afford everything in the area that you live in? Maybe you're facing some housing troubles if you wage didn't go up, or maybe food's becoming a struggle, or maybe even your phone bill. What's something that you're struggling to pay off, and what's something that you put on the back burner just in case you're going to not have enough money to pay off some of the other bills? So with all that out there, I hope you leave your comments down in the comment section. Let's jump to our first article that comes from Daily Costs. And the headline reads, Why aren't Americans more thankful for Bidenomics and think Trump years were better? So this is a question that a lot of the Biden supporters, a lot of the people in the Biden administration are asking. They're like, whoa, 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 wait. Our poll numbers on this are absolutely terrible. What is going on here? Why are people not happy with what Mr. Biden is doing? I mean, at the end of the day, we're seeing some okay numbers here. We're seeing a strong, resilient economy, even though inflation is really high. So what is making people feel as though this is not actually the case, that the economy is worse than it actually is? And if I was to do a preliminary overview it may be that people don't look at macroeconomics. And I'm not necessarily saying that all the macroeconomics lean in their way, but the macroeconomics that the Biden administration puts forward, you could honestly say it's a pretty rational, strong argument. And I've had this pushback with many people that I've talked to, that though you know the narrative is that the economy isn't actually that good, I mean, if we look at the macro numbers, if we look at the base economic stats, we're actually doing pretty okay. And you know, I don't necessarily disagree with some of that analysis of the different macro stats. There's no doubt about the fact that unemployment is really, really low right now. And we're starting to have some wage growth that's catching up or, you know, we're having real wage growth that's catching up with these inflated prices. Once again, inflation is coming down at this point. But they always, you know, when they give these sort of arguments, it's like, okay, that, that's fair, but if inflation's coming down and somebody else's wage is catching up to where inflation is, that doesn't change the fact that they feel as though things are more expensive. Even though they're able to afford it, they're spending more money on groceries. So let me put it this way. You used to make $100,000, then $25,000 of that a year went to groceries. Even though you now make $150,000, if that's what your new income is and it's adjusted for inflation and all that, but you're spending $37,000 on food or you're spending $40,000 on food a year, even though it could be proportionate, and I'm not sure I did the math exactly right on that one, what we would do, 15 divided by 4, it'd be somewhere around, what, 
7.5 and then we're looking at 3.75 so yeah $37 37,000 in around uh, $37,500 yeah sorry it took me a while to get that exact math right but if you're spending that amount on food which is directly proportionate it is exactly one fourth of your income just like the $25,000 you're spending before the wage increase, before all this inflation, it still feels like more money out of your pocket. Not everybody's going to look at it and say, oh, well, you know, actually, it's the same proportion. You know, out of all my wages, it's the exact same proportion that I'm spending on my... No, people don't think that way. They're saying, wow, I'm spending an extra 12500 on food every single year, and I'm getting paid more, but that's taking more out of the money that I'm making. I mean, I'm, I'm making more money, man. This is supposed to be amazing for me. I'm supposed to be able to shore things up, put the, some things away for retirement. But this extra 12500 that I'm paying for me and my family just to get by, to survive, just to eat a meal in the morning or the afternoon, that, that really hurts. That stings, even if at the end of the day it's the same proportion because that's not how people feel about things. They don't look at it very analytically like that. And I'm not saying that's a necessarily good thing, bad thing. I'm not trying to degrade anybody. Not everybody looks at it in an analytical fashion. They're not economists sitting there and saying, oh, well, the numbers break down this way. No, they're like, this is my pocketbook, and I feel the money leaving. So that's one reason. But I'm going to let the author speak for themselves here. You know, They kind of go into a similar argument, but they, they have a very different tact about it. Quote, on this Thanksgiving, so yes, it was released on, this article was released on Friday, uh, actually late Thursday, but I read it early Friday. On this Thanksgiving, I remain confused over polls that give President Biden low marks on the economy, where voters say things are bad in a time when most data and outside reality would tell you that things are very good. We have unemployment and inflation both below 4%, while wage growth is above 4%. And we've just seen the largest three-year growth in the U.S. wealth in decades. Job growth continues at an impressive level, and the price of gasoline has fallen below $3 a gallon here in Wisconsin. You know, uh, before I go on with other quotes from this article, I mean, yeah, I saw my first under three when I went back into Virginia for Thanksgiving. So, yeah, th that's not wrong. We're seeing lower gas prices. Remind me what the lowest gas price under Trump was, though. Uh, just 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 look it up for yourself. Maybe that will elucidate some things. Just because things are getting better doesn't mean they were as good as when Trump was in office and people may be reminiscent of the times when they were that good. But you can make an argument, well, things are coming under control now. Yes, but were things ever out of control during the Trump presidency besides during COVID? I think that's an argument that some people would make from the Republican side of the aisle. But there's uh, interesting statistics here that the author pulls out. Quote, Before I go into Newman's numbers, I will say that I have become deeply skeptical of articles about voters' anti-Biden feeling, given the Dems have consistently won elections for seven years in this country. And we should remember that 35 to 40% of Americans will say the economy was better under Trump because they are dishonest MAGAs who are separated from reality with their opinion which should be considered invalid on the subject. Can we just talk about the, I don't know, I don't want to say elitism, but the pure hatred of people who disagree with you politically that you would outright say that their opinion should be void? This reminds me of times when Republicans would say, uh, well, the Democrats don't have the best interests of this country at heart, and they're just so partisan that they wouldn't be able to see past themselves. 
and they would, you know, we should disregard their opinion on this. It's the same sort of hateful stuff. And let's be clear, I'm not saying that people who are, you know, MAGA fans are going to be a little bit biased towards their own guy. Or the same thing about Democrats who would be responding to polls that Republicans readily throw out the window because, oh, they're just following the party line. They could just be following the party line because they genuinely believe it or because if you're a malicious person, oh, it's a Democratic talking point and I will obey. No, so there's a difference here. And you know, this person, she's not ascribing malice but she's saying, well, out of pure hatred for Democrats, they're just going to say that it was worse off. Or maybe, maybe they actually believe it because they were feeling a benefit during the time when their guy was in office. And also, they genuinely want to believe that their guy was better than Joe Biden. And they weren't looking at the macro either. They were just looking at certain things that they were able to afford during that time. So I'm not saying that, you know, in a purely, purely vacuum-filled room where you have to get rid of all your biases that all of these people would 100% line up behind Trump. But there were better aspects during his presidency. And to say that, hey, we have to completely disregard their opinion because they support MAGA, that's just completely idiotic. And it's self-serving to her point, too, which is what's really frustrating about it. But that's beyond it. So let's get back to the numbers they were talking about. But 35% is not a majority either. So let's look at the data Newman brings, which can explain why the outside the bubble world may think that the economy was better four years ago. And the immediate stat he points to is wages versus inflation. So he has a beautiful little graph here. And it's uh, there's some data that, you know, it doesn't necessarily look so good for Mr. Biden. So if there's a baseline of 100%, and then they have this chart that talks about average hourly earnings. Under Trump's presidency, the average hourly earnings rose from 100%, so whatever the baseline was at the beginning of his presidency, to 103%. So over the course of his tenure, they went from, well, let's say you were making $100, now you're making $103 uh, on a average hourly earnings. I'm not saying that's exactly what it is, but based off of a baseline percentage of 100% of when he came in to when he was ending, that was what happened. And now Biden, if you look at it, it is somewhere hovering around like 99%. So you would have made $100 when he came in, and now you're making one oh, oh, sorry, you're making $99 at the time that they're taking this record. And they're comparing both of these in mid-October before COVID hit for Trump and anything else that happens for Biden over the course of this next year. So overall, if Trump went up by 3%, Biden went down by 1%, then compared to eight years ago, or what, yeah, about seven years ago at this point, you would still have a 102 increase in your overall real wage earnings. But where did a majority of that increase come from? Trump. Actually, all of it came from Trump. The offsetting increase, the extra 2% that you would have compared to seven years ago came from Trump, and the decrease came from Biden. So that's one of the reasons this author is pointing to and saying, hey, this isn't some outside research that's saying, at the end of the day, averagely, average hourly earnings are lower under Biden. Not only have they gone down, but they're also putting it at a point where it is lower than when people elected Trump. So if you look at the four-year span that Trump was in there with the increase from $100 an hour, I'm not saying this is the exact statistics, but I'm just doing it to make the math easy for me 
with $100 that they would have made per hour to, oh, I'm making 103 an hour, versus when Biden came in, if it was $100 an hour, they're now making $99 an hour. So it's one of those things where at the end of the day, it doesn't feel like it's that much of a difference. But when you have that deep contrast and you're barely doing better than before Trump came in, and most of those gains came in during the Trump era, then you're, you're going to be saying, okay, who's the one that screwed it up for me? Was it Trump or was it Biden? And, you know, I think there's an argument to be made because the reason that this graph also doesn't include the COVID times for Trump is because that is something that a lot of people forgive him for. It was something he couldn't control at the end of his presidency. He was trying to do what he could. He gave out stimuli, so on and so forth. But they kind of forgive him for that. But then they don't necessarily forgive Biden for what he did during COVID. I don't know if that's because most people felt that COVID was mostly done, had passed through the zeitgeist by the time that Biden got into office, or it's because, well, he actually inherited an administration that was doing something, or his policies were just ineffective anyway. I don't know why they don't necessarily forgive him for the beginning of his tenure when COVID was still a thing, even though most people had moved on from it in a lot of different states. But uh, that is something that does need to be considered here. Trump had great years and then had something foisted upon him. Biden had something foisted upon him and had to do something with it. And maybe that's another reason that the sentiment is different between the opinions of Biden and Mr. Trump. I don't know. But this article is another a fascinating one. I would give it even more time because there is more information from the author here talking about, you know, stock growth and how the stock market grew more under Trump during the same time period than it did for Biden, even though at the beginning of Biden's administration it was better. There's lots of different information here that the author breaks down from a few different studies, and I would suggest going and reading it and having a little bit more in-depth conversation because I can only cover so much while I'm talking here and also throwing in my needless opinions, but, you know, that's just me. <laughs> so let's jump to our second article that comes from Alternet, and the headline reads, The Red State Brain Drain is Well Underway. Here is why. So they have a beautiful picture of Miss uh, Huckabee Sanders. Well, if you consider beautiful straining and looking a, a, a little bit frustrated, but I think they're trying to get their point across. She is the governor of a Republican or a red state, and uh, they're trying to make it seem as though these governors are very frustrated about the brilliant minds that they are losing, which very well may be true. But uh, there's the interesting overall point, which is a lot of different red states have imposed different academic restrictions. They have uh, limited the amount of different types of conversations that certain people can have in academia, in schools, and they're theorizing, they're pointing out this is probably going to cause a lot of people who may disagree with some of these policies to leave their states, among other things. So let's jump in. Let's let them explain their point rather than me pontificating. No, that's not the right word, but rather than me just sitting here and spewing what they're saying. Quote, my many liberal and progressive pundits have been predicting a brain drain from red states 
skillful college-educated doctors, university professors, and teachers leaving because of oppressive MAGA policies. OBGYNs are worried that draconian anti-abortion laws, teachers and librarians are under attack from the far-right Moms for Liberty. The New Republic's Timothy Noah, in an article published on November 22nd, emphasized that the brain drain from red states isn't something that may or may not happen in the future. It's already underway. And here's a quote from his article. Quote, Republican-dominated states are pushing out young professionals by enacting extremist conservative policies. No reports. Abortion restrictions are the most sweeping example, but state laws restricting everything from academic tenure to trans, uh, transgender health care to teaching of divisive concepts about race are making these states uncongenital to knowledge workers. End quote. So, you know, a lot of these points, I, I understand exactly where uh, the argument lies. Uh, if you're not allowed to talk about, you know, hard, divisive concepts, then maybe you feel as though you're not able to give the full breath as a teacher and you can't actually describe certain situations. I would argue that very often we take this too far and rather than just talking about the history, we actually uh, deride different groups for anything that they've done which is terrible to other people and put them down. But, you know, at the same time, uh, that tends to fall on one line or the other in American history. And you could see why certain people would be hesitant to outline one group, one specific group as a problem maker and the other group as someone who did nothing wrong and was completely suppressed by another. Because, one, that's not realistic whatsoever. Everybody has faults. Everybody has problems. And you can't just shuffle along a certain group. You can't, first off, put everybody into a group and say, ah, bad, and the other group, good. Uh, this is a lot of what the CRT kind of thinking or talking about discussion normally ends up in. One side has oppressed. The other side has been oppressed. The oppressed can't do anything bad because everything they do is in response to being oppressed. And the oppressors can't do anything good because they are oppressing another group. And when you put it in these simple yet overly simplistic terms, you miss the idea that, no, there are good and bad people on both sides. There are evil people on both sides. But at the end of the day... We should not be defined as a group. We should be defined as our individual as our individual selves, as what we bring to the table, what actions we do. If you are a person who goes to a rally in a hood, you understand the thing I'm alluding to. Google does not like certain terms. YouTube does not like certain terms. If you're a person that goes that you and you fully believe everything that is said there, you are a bad person. You are a terrible person. And if you go to a counter one where you wear uh, a certain patch that says that you have to completely eliminate the other side of the argument and do it through revolutionary means, you're not a good person either. And when I say revolutionary means, I mean the removal of those people, not just from the political conversation, but from the uh, living world, let's put it that way, then you are also not a good person. You Just because you feel as though your population has been oppressed does not make you a good person for wanting to 
end somebody else's existence. I, I, no, no, that doesn't make you a good person, even if you feel justified doing it. Because guess who else feels justified doing it? The guy at the other rally that I was just talking about, he feels justified that, oh, well, this and that is happening, this and that is happening, and this is happening to my community, and we need to protect it. And then they feel justified in their actions. I don't care how justified you feel. It's not okay. And when we start putting people into blank this category, X category, Y category, and we start to have these conversations that completely miss the point, which is individuals can affect change, not just viewing things through a group identity lens, but rather through an individual lens, then maybe we can get somewhere productive. So I think that that conversation about CRT is, while I understand where a lot of people feel as though they're not being allowed to talk about certain aspects of it. I also think that CRT has been taken too far in that it is actually limiting the growth and expansion of knowledge by simply categorizing certain people, groups, actions, and then completely saying, oh no, we're, we're not going to talk about it anymore. These are good. These are bad. The world is not black and white like that. And, you know, I, I used to think it was myself. Honestly, I used to be in that illusion. It's not. There is a shade of gray. Sometimes people lie to you, and they lie to you because they think they're protecting you. At the end of the day, were they really protecting you or were they protecting themselves? That's a totally different conversation, but my point is you can do terrible things with noble goals. That doesn't mean that they're any less terrible, and it doesn't make your noble goals any less noble. Guess what? Because there's gray. It's not as simple as black and white. And anything that teaches that way is actually demeaning to the people that is being taught to because saying that they can't handle the nuance of any given conversation. One other part that I thought was interesting, which has been happening, is the reduction of tenure spots, which that one does have a very interesting conversation behind it, which is we don't want to actually encourage people to or encourage professors to have absolutely radical ideas and they feel as though should, they should be accountable to the academic regime if they're saying something that they wouldn't necessarily agree with, which I think at, to some degree there's an argument to be made there. But I also think tenure is a very important thing which makes sure that professors are not ideologically captured by the university that they are working at. They're not saying what they believe in order just to get along. They're saying what they have to say to get along. They're saying what they believe. Now, is it possible that on the track to tenure, they have to suppress what they want to say so often that they do end up just falling in line by the time they get tenure? Yes, I've also heard that argument. But it's an interesting conversation there. And I think that is going to be a huge problem for places that remove tenure, which is professors are not going to be willing to put in those hours. And it's maybe a perverse incentive system, no doubt. But a lot of professors put in a lot of those hours, not just because they care about their job, not just because they care about the people they're teaching, not just because they are very passionate about a particular subject, but they're looking for stability and protection later on so they can you know, maybe change some social ideas. Maybe they just want the stability of having a tenure job later on in their career so they can come to work and just go throughout the rest of their life in a comfortable manner and, you know, write their books and not have to worry about getting kicked off of campus. But that is something that a lot of professors, whether you like it or not, that's what they aim for. So by removing that incentive structure, 
then are we really encouraging a lot of people to drudge it out and go through the unfortunate hard associate uh, positions at being an associate professor where you have to put in a few more hours. You don't necessarily get paid as much, if anything, from certain colleges. Are they really going to put in that drudge work if they don't see a tenure position towards the end? Maybe. A lot of academics are idealistic and they truly do believe in the academic process, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that the best of them, the ones that really want to put in the time and the effort, are going to stay. So I think that's a conversation that needs to be happening here in the future. And it is sad to see that this brain drain is going to be happening in red states. Because if there's any place that nowadays needs to retain people who are of a higher academic status, it is the red states. Because a lot of these academic regimes, a lot of these academic schools promote a certain way of thinking. And if there's one way to counter that and to have an alternative point of view, it's to have strong red-minded or conservative academics in these different fields you know, pushing back. And if all of these people, all of these professors are like, oh, well, hold on, these red states are persecuting, we're going to go to the blue states, they may get put down the funnel or be forced out if they're conservative when they go to these other locations because they don't fall in line, or they may be funneled into a more... Uh, liberal progressive worldview as they go through their doctorate training in other states. So there needs to be a very delicate balance here. And I'm not saying that, you know, there has to be conservative academics. There don't have to be any type of academics. I don't care if they're liberal. I don't care if they're Democrat. I don't care if they're conservative, if they're Republican, if they're libertarian, if they're from the Mises. I don't care where necessarily they come from. But if you're a person who is actually genuinely concerned about academia being captured by one political ideology, then maybe you should think a little bit more strategically and foster an environment where the opposite academia, the one that is more towards a different ideology that can actually push back and cause a little bit of a battle in between some of these areas of study that can actually encourage conversation and possibly redefine academia moving forward. Maybe you should reconsider some of these policies so that there's a, a fostering rather than a withering of certain academia realms, even though some conservatives would definitely disagree with me on that one, saying academia or academia, excuse me, is a parasite overall. But the only way to change that perception is to change the people that are in there and change the way these conversations happen. But, you know, just my humble opinion. All right, so let's just jump to our next article that comes from Counterpunch, Why We Need Bayard Rustin's Practical Radicalism Today. So when I first read that headline, and this will be really short, it will be four to five minutes max, I was like, wait, hold on, hold on. Radical, practical radicalism. What, what do they mean by that. And to be honest, I was a little confused, but I'm just going to read two quotes and then uh, maybe you'll understand a little bit more and maybe you'll be intrigued enough to go read this article yourself. Ask most Americans what they think of radicals and you'll hear skepticism. Ask them about practical radicals and you might get a chuckle. Surely practical people don't try to change society in dramatic ways. 
and then we skip down a little bit. Practical radicals are responsible for much of the progress we have made over the centuries, and they are our best hope for addressing growing crises of democracy, climate change, and inequity today. Rutzen is best known as the architect of the famous 1963 March on Washington, where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. But Rutzen spent decades before and after that pivotal event organizing for fundamental changes in American society. He was a radical who sought an end to racism, war, and poverty. He was motivated by his Quaker faith, his training in nonviolence, pacifism, and abiding a commitment to social democracy. He was persecuted, jailed, shunned, and condemned both for his radical convictions and being a gay man. End quote. So, radical or practical radicalism. Practical radicalism. Radicalism basically fenced in by guiding principles. At the end of the day, you can have radical, what they're getting at is you can have radical ideas for change while also going about implementing that change in a practical manner, not in a way that is meant to completely upheave the entire system, but rather do it within guide rails. Do it not necessarily within the system, but just outside the system. If you're looking at a road, okay, you have your yellow lines on both sides. Uh, so you're on a two-lane road. You have your yellow lines on both sides saying, hey, these are the outer extents of the legal pathway. Let's call that everything within that the system. You have your left lane, your right lane. And then just outside the yellow, there's a little bit of pavement before you have the guardrails on either side. That is where the practical radicalism lives. You're still within the guardrails. You're still within the society, but yet you're not quite within the system that is within those yellow lines. You're not within the right segment. You're not within the left segment, but you're still within the broader society's overall Overton window. And you're going to change things slowly but surely. You are going to take means that are not going to be seen as overthrowing something, as trying to actively destroy something, as trying to uproot it in order to plant something new, but rather you're going to slowly shift where those yellow lines are. You're going to slowly shift the Overton window within that society. You're going to make positive change by implementing your vision in a way that shapes where those yellow lines are, that shapes the system. And I know my analogy may have fallen apart for you there, but imagine this. Over time, those yellow lines fade a little bit. Maybe they get a little bit weaker. Maybe after being worn down by years upon years of people driving on the right side or the left side of the lane, they actually start to blur a little bit. And some of your ideas from the broader radical movement that you have within the society start to fade into the mainstream political. That is what practical radicalism is, in my opinion. And I think there's an argument to be made here, which is strong people, people who have strong beliefs that may fall outside how the system operates now, but are willing to put in the effort and stay within the bounds of the society, yet encourage deep change to how that system works, if they do it in a peaceful manner, if they do it in a way that is not so abhorrent to the society that they're going to get kicked out of it altogether, then they can affect change. Rather than trying to have a massive upheaval, upheaval like we have nowadays where everybody says we need complete systemic change, we need complete societal change. No, we need gradual change. We need to shift the Overton window in order to make sure 
that we're not throwing anybody out of the society that isn't ready for that change. I think that's what they're getting at. And I think it's an interesting conversation to be had because I feel as though we've lost that. I feel as though we've lost people with the long, the long-term mentality of saying we're going to affect change for not just ourselves, not just our kids, but for our grandkids. Now it's, no, the change has to be now because we live in such a fast world. We have to see the change immediately. And it very often leads to burnouts because these sort of changes don't happen overnight. And then when people don't see it materialize exactly when they want it to, they get frustrated. They leave behind any change that they would want to see because they don't believe it's feasible rather than having a long-term perspective on how to affect change within their society for positive means. But, you know, once again, just my opinion. Hope my analogy helped clarify some things. And with all of that stuff out of the way, we're going to go to something really positive. We're going to go to our daily delight that comes from HITC. Playful polar bear knocking over a traffic marker will melt your heart. And of course, you know, polar bear melted your heart. A very uh, interesting picture there, no doubt. So everybody was talking about the rare video of a polar bear caught playing with the traffic marker. And one can't get enough of this adorable moment. And I mean, no doubt about it. The polar bears, we had a video where they got a uh, blue rubber ball, kind of like a dodgeball the other day at a zoo, and that was also a very cute one. This one, this polar bear, not in the zoo. He's out in the wild, but uh, the video went crazy on social media. Quote, it is depicting the goofy polar bear that was reportedly found in Churchill, Manitoba, according to Storyful Viral, the TikTok account where the original footage was posted. A full-grown polar bear is seen lying in the gra- lying on the ground on its back and knocking over a traffic marker by the side of the road, unbothered by the vehicles as they are driving past. And, you know, I wish I could be that polar bear so uncaring about what's going on around him and just having a fun time with a little bit of a, how should we put it, creative destruction. I think that's a, that's a nice way to put it. So if you want to see any of these cute photos or videos or you want to read any of today's articles, you can find a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post the Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday, unscripted and a little bit less quoting, just kind of off the top of the head thoughts or stuff that I've been reading kind of seeping its way into the commentary. So with all that said, There's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.